VI Shots Live You Podcast, episode number 24. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of VI Shots. My name is Michael Ivaliotis, and this is the podcast devoted to the world of LabVIEW. With each episode, I bring you interviews, discussions, and share with you ideas for how you can take your LabVIEW development to the next level. Well, thank you all again for joining me on this episode of the VI Shots podcast. I'm very excited today to welcome Brian Powell, who is currently serving as a LabVIEW technical evangelist at National Instruments. Brian, of course, is well known as one of the original team members that helped bring LabVIEW 2.0 to the market uh, as a software engineer. He started with National Instruments back in 1988 and was originally hired on to do C, C++ assembly work on LabVIEW. Over the years, however, he has served many leadership roles in the company. His roles have always revolved around developing new LabVIEW features and capabilities, but also guiding and mentoring the various LabVIEW development teams at NI. One key contribution was to help NI's software development process evolve from ad hoc to structural. This LabVIEW software development process was eventually evolved into an R&D-wise software engineering process used for all products at National Instruments. For the past two or three years, after realizing that LabVIEW needs better field support instead of new features, Brian Assembleden is currently overseeing an elite group of LabVIEW experts called field architects that work in large accounts and help engineers become more proficient in LabVIEW. This team guides software architectures, develops technical leaders, and teaches good software engineering. Well, Brian, welcome. I'm honored to have you on the show. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. And I want to correct one thing. It's uh, not instead of new features. It's in addition to new features. <laughs> new features are always being developed uh, for LabVIEW, obviously. And uh, based on the, the beta that I've been working on this past few months, uh, there's a lot of cool features in LabVIEW 2013 as well. That's right. Uh, one one interesting thing that I um, that I learned about you as I was uh, reading your uh, online biography or uh, profile was that uh, you introduced email and internet to National Instruments. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That was one of my early projects uh, back uh, the first few months that I started at NI. Did you invent the internet, Brian? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Well, back then, I guess uh, you you wore many hats, and I guess that was that was one of your other uh, responsibilities. That's right. When uh, when I started, it was about 135 people at NI, so everybody wore a lot of hats, and uh, that was just pretty much the norm. Uh, you know, it still very much had a startup feel back then. So the impetus for this interview was a series of blog articles you wrote recently on LabViewJournal.com, and also I suggest. All of our audience members go to labviewjournal.com and read those articles. And in that, you talk about humility, uh, humility in a programmer. Can you uh, explain that? Well, the, uh, the whole idea of my blog series has been about humility, about being a humble programmer. And one of the things that uh, a very large application like LabVIEW will teach you as you write code and support it over the course of well, 25 years is uh, it 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 will teach you humility just by having to face uh, you know very daunting tasks of having to deal with it. Um, for example, when I was uh, leading the team porting LabVIEW from 32-bit to 64-bit, we had uh, you know the entire LabVIEW source code base that we needed to 
uh, understand and port over to the 64-bit operating systems. And you really get to appreciate the beautiful simplicity of some of the code, and you also get to be frustrated by the complexity and uh, clever programming styles that some people had that tend to obfuscate some of the areas of code. Now, uh, you say in your in one of your uh, blog posts that um, territorialism is not tolerated. The the concept of, you know, this is my code and you, you, you can't look at it or you have to stay awake. <laughs> I'm the owner <laughs> of this code. That's right. Yeah, we, we, we don't really tolerate that. We One of the things we did somewhere along the way is we started putting a comment at the top of the file with the... Uh, I think we put the word owners there, but, you know, we might have, you know, who owns this file, but it was not really uh, a territorialism thing. It was more of, if you have questions about this file, who are the people you can go and ask? And uh, we we always, you know, one of the things that uh, Steve Rogers, who's one of the chief architects in LabVIEW, has said is that, you know, nobody owns any of the code in LabVIEW, and the only person who can say that they own any of the code is Jeff Kodosky. <laughs> Of course, uh, when you're developing code, it's text-based. Uh, C, when we're developing, it's actually using LabVIEW to develop our own code. What, what are some of the things that we should be doing in our code to uh, make it more open to the team? Uh, I know commenting is one thing. Well, yes. Uh, you know, Primarily, I was a text-based programmer, but I also did a fair amount of programming in LabVIEW. And really, the, the ideas, the concepts are exactly the same between those two. And so, uh, yes, comments in the code, it's using the simplest solution to a problem that you've got. Um, it's uh, making diagrams that are easy to read and easy to understand that are modular. Those are all important things for the maintainability and scalability of the code. One underutilized feature of LabVIEW, in my opinion, that provides clarity in the code is the use of sub-VIs. Yeah, and in fact, I like to... Um, you know, essentially start to mock up, just like I might mock up a front panel, I might start to mock up my block diagram and create sub-VIs that are empty, but are showing where, okay, here's my initialization, and I'm actually going to put that in a sub-VI, or here's a uh, analysis loop, or here's an actor, whatever it is I'm trying to do, I'm going to go ahead and maybe start to mock that up. And uh, that's going to encourage me to make simple diagrams that convey what the program is doing even before I'm writing the code to actually do that. And uh, the reason why we would do something like that is just to make the code easier to read, right? Because um, a lot of times people spend time just trying to figure out what the other person is doing. Anything that we can do on the diagram visually to clarify the concepts, I think, just help help a lot. Yeah, and that's one of the quotes that I had from one of the books that I referred to was that the, the computer can read bad code just as easily as it can read good code. And so really who you're trying to make good readable code for is yourself because you're going to read your code over and over again as you continue to work on it, as you maintain it, or for others who are going to maintain it after you're done with it. And to that, I guess, um, it's the, the whole idea of reducing complexity. Um, you talk a little bit about how um, complicated is different than complex, right? That's right. You know, that was... Uh, one of the ideas that came out of uh, was, let me see, it was Major uh, Major Dan Ward had done this thing on the simplicity cycle and talked about how uh, some applications in it, or systems, it wasn't even talking about computer software necessarily, but systems could grow to be, um, as, they, as they grew in complexity, they could turn complicated, in which case they 
kind of uh, implode on themselves because they're so difficult to maintain, or that they turn simple. And so that whole idea of, of, you know, I always say that our customers work on complex problems, and we have complex solutions. You know, LabVIEW, uh, our hardware, they're complex, but they are not necessarily complicated. And so complexity means you may have to pay attention to it. You have to have good design. You have to know what you're doing in terms of building a system. It's not something that can just write itself. But you want to avoid coming up with a complicated solution that is just so difficult to understand that you don't really know whether it works correctly or not. And I had another quote in there from uh, from Tony Hoare. Uh, he said, you know, I conclude there are two ways of constructing a software design. One is to make it so simple there are obviously no deficiencies. And the other way is to make it so complicated that there are no obvious deficiencies. And the first method is far more difficult. And I think that kind of captures this whole idea of, uh, yes, complexity is a normal part of what all of us do. And it's a matter of um, keeping it as simple as possible, as opposed to letting the complicated solutions take over and and cause us to fail. One one of the ways that, I mean, software can become very complex is when we kind of add more structure, more frameworks around it than necessary, I guess. When when you see some code that um, is big and has this, this large framework where the actual work is very simple and could be done in a simpler way, doesn't isn't that one way of adding complexity, do you think? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I listened to your podcast from a couple of weeks ago with Stephen Mercer and Alan Smith about the actor framework. And uh, one of the comments that I think Alan had in there is, or, or maybe Stephen talked about, uh, you know, I they saw people writing a bunch of applications that had multiple queued message handlers, and those are the target applications for which the actor framework makes a lot of sense. And so what's implicit in that statement is a lot of LabVIEW customers don't write applications that require lots of queued message handlers or lots of actors. Yet I see some people, in fact, I just got a question last week at a LabVIEW developer day in Maryland that somebody was asking of, you know, hey, I hear a lot about this active framework. Is that how we should be writing all of our applications now? And I happened to be in the room and I spoke up and I said, you know, no, it's not. It's the active framework is intended to solve a particular class of problems, but it is not this uh, solution to everything that you do. Uh, you know, I think one of my quotes in my my uh, blog article is uh, just, you know, if if that's the only, if that's the most powerful tool that you have, if that's your hammer, then everything's going to look like a nail and you're going to try and hit it with the Active Framework. And, you know, the Active Framework is great for the class of applications it's intended for, but I have seen people fail when they're trying to just do a simple solution that doesn't need the Active Framework and they get bogged down in the complexity of the Active Framework. Yeah, and, and, and it you know, propagates to the entire team because, you know, the whole team has to work with this uh, complicated framework and they may not be experts in the framework. Um, and then they have to kind of, you know, work with your code. Yeah, exactly. And one of the other areas that I work a lot in, both in NIR&D as well as with our customers, is developing technical leaders. Uh, at NI, we have an internal training that we call Tech Lead Best Practices Training. And it's basically, how do we develop technical leaders within the company? And the idea, one of the ideas in that training is uh, you're, you're developing a team. You're, you're the technical leader. And just because you can do something that's more advanced or, or maybe understand more of the system than 
a brand new engineer, that doesn't mean that you should do that. You've got a whole team with different skill levels and you need to make sure that everybody is able to contribute on that system. And if you start to make it overly complicated, then only the most clever programmers, the ones that can deal with the complicated solutions that you've got are the ones that can participate. So as a technical lead, it's un- it's important to understand what the actual skills are, not only of your team now, but a team in the future that might be maintaining the code that you're writing. And so therefore, you want to avoid being clever. You want to uh, come up with solutions that are as simple as possible for the solution that you're trying to, to uh, solve. Another, um, I guess, simple example is, um, you know, in, when you create a sub-VI, you can, in the VI properties, you can make it re-entrant, um, you know, and everybody would think, well, why don't I make all my VIs re-entrant? Like, why do I have the, why should I have the choice? And, you know, re-entrancy is awesome. But then once you enable that on all your VIs, then you're, <laughs> you're, it's, it's a feature that's not really required uh, for all applications in all uh, situations. So that makes your whole code very complicated in, in general. Well, and not only that, there are cases when VIs want to maintain state where it's not appropriate to have a reentrant VI. And so understanding the tools that you have at your disposal and understanding when to employ them and when to not employ them is really important. And that's another sign of a good technical leader. And I know you uh, promote certification and becoming, you know, a certified architect, certified LabVIEW architect. And I guess that's one benefit of becoming certified and, and learning about all these technologies and all these frameworks and techniques is that you can make l- smart decisions about which way to go. That's exactly right. You know, we have three uh, main levels of LabVIEW certification uh, plus an embedded certification that we recently added as well. And so the associate developer, you know, really just shows that you know something about the LabVIEW environment. The certified LabVIEW developer level, kind of that good, solid, intermediate level coder is what we're targeting that for. And so it's somebody who, you know, is adept at using LabVIEW, can write uh, a good, reasonable sized application in a few hours, and that's what's demonstrated by the CLD. The CLA, we actually start to shift away from coding specifically, you know, can you write an application that solves a problem? and gets more into that level of, am I employing the right architecture for the problem that I have at hand? Am I paying attention to good software engineering practices, like commenting, like uh, um, making sure that I'm covering my requirements and things like that? And so the the architect really is operating at a at a higher level. Um, one of the, taking that even a step further, we, uh, the field architects have been pushing uh, this idea of the LabVIEW Center of Excellence in a handful of our accounts. And it's a pilot program that we have in place right now. And it's not just about individual proficiency, but it's about organizational proficiency. So how do I make an entire team better at LabVIEW? And so that's where being a good technical leader, it's getting them to think beyond just how do they become a good programmer, but how do they make their team good programmers with the right level of skills? And it's a combination of beginner, intermediate, and advanced skills that they want should should be applying in team-based development with LabVIEW. I guess in the and when developing applications that require multiple developers, I guess it's finding that balance between you know who is going to be the lead um, and you know what what are the different qualities of the different team members and get making sure that that gels together correctly. That's right. When I was a senior group manager in LabVIEW R&D uh, 
back in the early 2000s. Um, it was uh, after the dot-com bubble, you know, the economic downturn then. And so for a while, we really slowed down hiring at NI for, uh, you know, a year or two. And so what I ended up with once we started hiring again is I ended up with a team of, uh, there was about half, 15-year, pretty advanced programmers and some people who had been at the company six months. And what I really was missing was the kind of programmer that had been there five years. Yes, a good solid developer that I could give a project to, um, and they I wouldn't have to worry about them the way I would with the six month person, uh, and and also somebody who's not pulled in as many different directions as a fifteen year person who has a a lot of code that they're responsible for, a lot of uh, mentorship that they're responsible for, and all the other ways that they're pulled. And so I from that experience I learned you know it's really important to have that pipeline of developers. I, I like having a team that's got some beginner people that I'm bringing along that are going to be the good solid developers of tomorrow and then those good solid developers today that I can give a variety of projects to and then the senior developers that I really value for their wisdom and for their uh, mentorship abilities. And so being able to construct a team like that is is my ideal for being a group manager. Personally, I, I'm afraid of the new programmer. <laughs> So how would you uh, make sure that everyone's on the same page, so to speak, and we're all sort of going with the same, in the same direction, the same kind of style and same programming um, methods? Well, I guess what, what comes to mind is the idea of egoless programming that was proposed by Dr. Gerald Weinberg back in the early 70s. And he was another, uh, you know, his book, The Psychology of Computer Programming, is another one of the... Uh, um, books that I referred to several times in our blog post on labviewjournal.com. And uh, this idea of egoless programming you know, comes back to this ownership of the code thing. And so part of the idea of egoless is that uh, learning and changing your programming style and adapting to the team's approach to how it does things is a natural part of the process and doesn't, there should be plenty of room to fail, there should be plenty of room for people to not get their egos all entangled in exactly how they want the code to be done. And so that takes, you know, especially as a new engineer who's trying to fit into an established team, that takes uh, some courage to be able to put yourself out there and get critiqued by these people who have 15, 20, 25 years of experience. It also takes some courage from the senior people to be willing to learn from brand new engineers who maybe know some uh, new ideas from computer science that might be actually be helpful. And so putting together the right team with the right psychology, uh, and, and I like the egoless kind of idea of building a team where you it's easier to assimilate in there and for people to collaborate on writing code. Yeah, it comes down to the, the idea of, you know, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about the code, right? That's exactly right. And uh, yeah, I, I love the the concept of egoless programming as well. And I think an important thing is not to have is to have people that to make sure your individuals are not working in isolation. And I think having the isolated programmer that goes off and works in a closet in a room by himself and comes out and produces something uh, is is not is, is scary and it's not the right approach. That's exactly right. You know, that was one of my themes on code reviews. One of the reasons I was really suggesting code reviews is. Uh, to me, that was one of the ways that I learned how to fit into the LabVIEW coding culture is I would write some code and then I would show it to the person sitting next to me or somebody else that was available 
And somebody, you know, back when I started, it was somebody who absolutely had a lot more experience than I did. And they would teach me in an egoless way, in a, you know, in a, a, a safe way, uh, you know, hey, you're, we, we prefer to do error checking a different way, or you missed doing error checking, or you didn't add some comments here, or these variables aren't named very well. I mean, whatever it is that they're trying to teach, they're, they're trying to teach me the LabVIEW style that fits into the code that we've already written. And so code reviews to me is the, the best way to do that. And uh, it's, it's a way to hand down some of that culture from the senior engineers. Uh, and it's, it's also a way, uh, you know, there's plenty of other benefits of code reviews, you know, that I mentioned in the blog post on labviewjournal.com. Um, we're also doing an NI Week presentation on code reviews. Uh, we did one last year that was standing room only, so we've decided to give it again this year. And we talk about the many benefits of doing code reviews. Yeah, code reviews are, are very powerful, and I'm really curious to, to know from our audience how many people actually, how many companies actually do code review as part of their process and don't circumvent it because of, you know, deadlines. I mean, no, we have to do the code review and no matter what type of thing. There's, there's several benefits to code reviews. Um, let's, let's go through some of them. Well, first of all, finding bugs, right? Uh, sure. That's, that's the main reason that we do it at NI. And we, at NI, every, at least on LabVIEW, every line of code, uh, every VI gets reviewed by somebody before it gets submitted to our central source code control repository. So somebody else sees that code. And the obvious, the obvious benefit, you know, primary benefit of doing that is looking for bugs. You're making sure that the code um, does what it's supposed to do. In fact, usually when I re review somebody else's code, I start with the question of, okay, what is it you're trying to do? Um, you know, if, if they're trying to fix a bug, then I will actually ask to go read the bug report before I look at their code. So I can understand, okay, here's the behavior that you're actually trying to change. And, uh, you know, so then I can look at it with that eye of, okay, you're trying to fix this. I see how you're trying to fix it. But maybe I'm also going to see, oh, you're breaking something else. It's really important. And so having a second set of eyes who maybe isn't quite as uh, narrowly focused on the problem at hand is, is really valuable. Another uh, powerful benefit of code reviews is converting that idea in your head or that voice in your head and the person you talk to. <laughs> and uh, instead of talking to yourself, uh, verbalizing, uh, using another part of your brain where you verbalize actually in describing what the code is doing out loud and to someone else and trying to explain the code. And, and all of us, just by doing that and listening back to what you're saying and looking at the code while you're doing that, it's like, oh, wait, I just, I thought it was doing this, but I, as I'm telling you this, but I just realized it's not doing this. I guess that's wrong. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right. That's uh, I think all of us who have done code reviews have experienced that same thing. We know in English what we're trying to do, and as we're trying to explain it to somebody else, then uh, we're realizing our words don't match the code that we have in front of us. And so um, I'm just as likely to find some of those bugs during the review as the reviewer might be. And in fact, maybe maybe even faster just because I know the code that much better. It's like, oops, I left out a, a case. Or I left out some error checking that I know is critical. Uh, and, you know, one of the other things that I really, you know, it, you know, right now I'm in a position where I'm in front of customers a lot and I see a lot of um, one-person projects. 
you know, where people don't have the luxury of having a team mm-hmm. to do the code reviews with. And so I like some of the comments that are on the blog from some of the community members who talk about, um, you know, like Jack Dunaway, I think, talked about asking for somebody just in the community that they could review the code with and just do it over Skype or, uh, you know, some other sharing program to to review code like that. Um, And then I think somebody else had this idea, maybe it was Jack, of uh, just having a rubber duck and... <laughs> uh, putting it next to your keyboard and just explaining your code to the rubber duck. And Nancy talked about having an imaginary friend that she would explain code to. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think that that quite um, replaces having an actual human being that can uh, ask questions of you, but it maybe is better than not doing a code review at all. Well, sometimes even even having that notion in your head that the you're you're creating this code for someone else's eyes... Just just thinking about that actually just makes the code better. Yeah, and that was actually one of the studies that Dr. Weinberg had found was, uh, you know, he did this study and there was one programmer that did particularly well on a project and it's because he had come from an environment assuming his code was going to be reviewed. Um, so even though his code wasn't going to be reviewed, he, he still had that mentality of, well, you know, somebody's going to see this, so I'm going to make it easy to understand, I'm going to document it well, and that code turned out to be better, more reliable than code written by others that didn't grow up in a programming environment like that. Yeah, it's like, well, you're thinking, I'm I'm going to get away with this, no one's going to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't get away with anything. <laughs> it's, going right. to, it's going to come back to haunt you. That's right. Especially, you know, that's one of the things I've learned just being at NI as long as I have is that that if there's if there are real if your code's not written well you know it's going to come back sooner or later probably sooner. Another uh, huge benefit of code review is to reveal or for the person writing the code they can learn about potentially um, reuse libraries that they weren't aware of because someone who's uh, looking at someone else's code can say hey you know we actually have a reuse library that does exactly what you just did um, and more efficiently or it's it's tested, you know, maybe you should use that as opposed to recreating it from scratch. Yeah, that kind of awareness of what is actually in the product and how it works and what it does is a, is a really common thing. Um, you know, sometimes we have that in the LabVIEW team where, um, you know, certain, uh, you know, LabVIEW 8 comes to mind where we added a bunch of code to, to create the whole LabVIEW project and project library system and some of the early stuff related to LabVIEW classes. And some of the team members that worked on that code weren't familiar with the core parts of LabVIEW and uh, ended up introducing some redundancy in our code that uh, uh, just because they weren't aware of what already existed. And so then, you know, once that code gets put in, then it's it's harder to take out later, um, you know, to try to reduce that redundancy, to reduce to start to consolidate some of that code. So if we'd had a system where it was easier to understand what was already there, um, we could have avoided that. And I think code reviews are a really good way of doing that because you start to see what's what is in the code, even if it's not an area that, uh, you know, I guess one of the things we, we um, encourage with code reviews is you don't always just find somebody who's just as familiar with the code as, you know, the section of code as you are. It's okay to find somebody who doesn't know anything about the section of code that you're wanting reviewed. And that way they come with a, a clean set of eyes um, and no preconceived ideas about how it's supposed to work. And so, and they're also exposed to 
uh, a new area of the code that might have some useful libraries that are reusable for something that they're trying to do. Now, as far as the, the technical aspect of how you do the code reviews, do you have any suggestions there? Um, do you, would you like have someone sit next to the person um, as kind of a standard code review, or would you have it where you know the reviewer is separated from the person who created the code and reading sort of the code at, at a different time or, or so on? Is there any specific methodology there? There are several methodologies, and it kind of depends on the project at hand. And we do uh, several different ways at NI. The most common one used in LabVIEW R&D is uh, what we call what we call code reviews. Actually, is we use a, a jargon term internal to LabVIEW R&D called buddy. You buddy the code, you know, and it's basically you find a buddy, you sit him down next to you. And you go through the code. You you show them the changes and just explain it. Go through it. And so, uh, buddy is a verb. You know, we we buddy the code. Have you buddied your code? You know, those those are the kinds of questions that are asked. Um, some people prefer a more formal thing. In fact, we as part of our software engineering process at NI, uh, newer people have to go through a more formal code review for a period of time for their code, and then that's where uh, the meeting is documented, the attendees are documented, the uh, action items that come out of the meeting are documented, and some more formal approval process. Where the buddy process is really, I'm just going to sit down and we're going to talk about things. I may ask you to make some changes and test them, and I want to buddy the code again. I want to review it again just to make sure that I'm happy with the changes. And it's a little less formal uh, in approach. And then we also have teams that do what I would call offline code reviews, where um, they send out their code in advance, and then they set up a web page that where people can record their comments. You know, who's who's making the comment, what is their question or comment, and then uh, the author of the code then responds to those comments, and it can just be done um, completely asynchronously. You know, maybe maybe even take a, a week for the various reviewers to get in their questions and for those to be responded to. Um, and I've yet, one, one of my other engineers uh, back a few years ago, uh, he would he had a large uh, LabVIEW-based project that, that was, um, uh, you know, basically a large state machine or queued message handler kind of approach or combination of those things. And uh, so what he would do is he would uh, set up, Meeting invitations, I think each, you set two or three meeting invitations of about 90 minutes each. And uh, then he used a conditional probe to record what states the state machine went through as it did various things. And then he used that information then to guide the code review. And we would say, okay, when you double click on this, this, what, this is what happens. And these are the states that my system goes through. And let's look at that code now. And because that was a large system that required a fair amount of time, and there were, I don't know, four or five of us reviewing the code, he would also bring refreshments so that we could, uh, would be motivated to stay there and pay attention. <laughs> right. And because there, there's this concept of reciprocation as well, right? You know, I'll, I'll review yours, you review mine, and uh, we all help each other on this. That's right. And that goes back to the egoless ideas that uh, because it's about the code, it's not about me trying to find a reviewer that's going to be nice to me um, or uh, or trying to find somebody who I can try and slip some clever programming by. 
you know, that, those are the sorts of things that are discouraged. In fact, I, sometimes I would go after, you know, if I had a particularly critical bug, you know, that I was trying to fix, maybe it was something late in the development process, I would find the most uh, stubborn reviewer that I could find to review the code just because I knew if I could pass that gauntlet, there's a good chance that uh, there weren't any bugs in the fix that I was trying to create. Yeah, so some some great information. I hope we uh, encourage people to do more code reviews if they don't already do them. One area I'd like to discuss is uh, one section of your uh, post on the blog was this concept of, well, basically you presented as kind of a discussion you had with uh, Nancy Hollenbeck, which is another field architect that, that you work with, this idea of uh, code maintainability. And... Um, as you're going with your discussion on with her, you came to the conclusion that uh, your idea of what maintain maintainability meant was different than what she thought. And uh, can you elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, and then there's maintainability, scalability, extensibility. English is just an imprecise language for trying to describe what it is, what those pressures are that I'm trying to address in the code. Um, and so my idea of maintainability might be for a particular project might be skewed towards simplicity you know i in order to make this code i want to make it as simple as possible but by doing that i might be making it harder a year from now or even a month from now to add some new capability that uh, that might be a future requirement for this code and so should i invest a little bit more maybe make the code a little less simple in order to add some flexibility so that a month from now or a year from now when I'm asked to add some capability that it'll be easier to add then. And so there's not a precise answer to that question. We don't know exactly what somebody's going to ask for a month from now or a year from now. And a lot of times, even if I guess, I may guess wrong. And so the flexibility that I build in now is potentially wasted effort and is potentially costing me in terms of simplicity right now. And so, uh, you know, it's programming is more of an art or is just as much of an art as it is a science. And so that's where some of that experience comes in of being able to find that right balance between simplicity and flexibility and extensibility uh, and scalability so that I'm making the right trade-offs and I'm not prematurely adding a bunch of complexity before I really need it. I, I think experience is everything, in my opinion, um, because... Uh, in my case, I've when I started off, I uh, I tried to do s simple, um, but then you know I'm the same person that comes around and maintains the code a year later when the customer comes back and says, oh, "Okay, we want to add this feature," and now you go in and you realize that <laughs> you did it the wrong way, and now you have to rewrite it. So uh, that only comes from experience because you basically experience that feedback loop, um, and then it kind of says, "Well, I guess I did it wrong. I should have done this," and the next time you do that same kind of application. You say, well, last time I did that, uh, you know, it bit me in the butt. So I'm going to do this differently this time. And I guess that's how you, you build up your experience on that. It's one of my favorite stories there is, uh, you know, when I was just starting at NI and LabVIEW was a 32-bit application running on the Mac. And I remember asking Steve Rogers, you know, should, should I be worried about the, the far, far future of 64-bit processors? You know, should I be worried about, um, you know, trying to understand what are the things that need to be 64-bit that might be containing pointers? 
uh, and and separating them out from all the places where we're just assuming the pointers are 32-bit. And he said, well, you know, I wouldn't worry about that right now because sometime far in the future, somebody else is going to come along and they're going to have to worry about it and they'll just deal with it then. And I didn't know then that that was going to be me <laughs> uh, <laughs> 20, a, 20 years later to, to take on that project. That, that's a great example. That's, that's awesome. Um, what, well, the example that you mentioned, the image that you post on your on your blog is actually uh, kind of a so oversimplified example. I mean, you have, you know, data on a graph and then you just put down the loop. Sure. Personally, I would never write that simple loop. I, I just I just don't have it in me to write that simple loop. <laughs> I, I just can't. I don't know how anybody could do that. But then on the other hand, you have the other extreme, uh, which has, you know, this event driven, you know, state machine kind of approach. And but that is kind of the extreme as well. That's kind of the over-the-top solution. I wouldn't write that either. I think the best one is something that's kind of in between. And, um, you know, that's kind of why um, I'm not trying to plug anything, but, you know, we, we created the JKI State Machine, which is a free, you know, community template. And that's kind of why we like it, because it's kind of in the middle. It's not too overly complex. It's not too simple. It kind of does a little bit of both. Uh, it allows the, the flexibility to, to move forward, but it's not too simple that you're going to have to tear it down and rewrite it. Um, and that's kind of how we do, and we've developed that over the years because uh, we found that it kind of straddles that, that middle ground. Well, and I, you know, I think that's a great point to make. You know, these two examples that I have in my, uh, it was part five of my uh, blog post on labviewjournal.com, it was actually in the context of examples. And so uh, talking about the and, you know, in LabVIEW 2013, we're trying to scrub all the examples and make them better and make them better examples because um, some of the code there had gotten kind of stale. Um, and if I was trying to make an example of how do I do a continuous acquisition and plot it to a chart, then, uh, you know, I like my simple one loop example that shows that because there's not a lot of extra fluff. Uh, there's not a lot of extra uh, complicated content there that gets in the way of me understanding at the core of it, there's one analog input VI that's acquiring my data, and then I can scale it and graph it. Mm -hmm. uh, then the other example actually comes from our uh, sample projects and templates that were added in LabVIEW 2012. And so here we're creating a, a uh, sample project that is the starting point for a continuous measurement application. And... Uh, I could see somebody thinking that the starting point for a continuous measurement application is overly complicated if what I'm trying to do is just acquire some data and get it into a graph. And, you know, then it's a question of, you know, it comes back to these maintainability, scalability, flexibility, extensibility, those kinds of ideas of, well, if I really am going to build a much bigger system, then I probably should be starting from the larger example that's that separates out user interface from processing and so on. But uh, if I'm not going to scale my application much beyond that, then maybe I should start with a simpler solution. So that's, you know, it kind of comes to this, well, how, you know, ideally we would ask much more precise questions yeah. when you're helping a, a new user get started with LabVIEW to help them really understand what it is, what is it you're trying to do and try to guide them towards an ideal solution. And unfortunately we don't have the ability to do that yet. But uh, uh, that's the sort of thing that I, I don't want the default answer to always be, well, you start with uh, two or three or four or five loops and just start from there. No, I, I agree. Um, in the context of examples, this is perfect. I mean, you really want something simple that 
focuses more on the concept that you're trying to demonstrate rather than all this extra framework and fluff that has nothing to do with what you're trying to learn right now. That's right. And, and really, you know, my, my example there is, uh, you know, there was a, uh, an attempted mandate at, uh, you know, we will not have any polling user interfaces in this application or in, among these examples. Mm. And then, well, you know, what do you mean by a polling user interface? And as you, you know, more precisely try to de- determine what is allowed and what's disallowed, you can uh, end up with these complica- complicated solutions that lose sight of the fact that you're just trying to make a simple example. Yeah, and uh, I think at the end of the day, it really depends on the project you're trying to create, uh, build, um, the code you're trying to develop, and the, the problem you're trying to solve, the customer's requirements, uh, you know, and also you need to really ask the customer, well, what is kind of, what do you expect the lifetime, for example, of this application to be? Um, and, you know, what are your Give us like pie in the sky. Like, what do you think this is going to be doing like a few years from now? <laughs> and and, and should, I think you should that, be asking those things. Yeah. And I think that's where the experience really comes in. You know, going back to that idea of experience. Uh, one of the other things that I see all the time dealing with customers is they don't, there are certain things that they don't know that they don't know. So they don't know to ask themselves these questions on what's the lifetime of this application or what are the likely feature requests are going to be here in three months or six months or a year from now that I should plan for. And if I don't even know that I'm supposed to ask myself that question, then there's no way I'm going to ask myself. And then therefore, I'm not going to answer that. I'm not going to think about it when I write my code. Well, Brian, um, it's been uh, great having you on the show. Uh, any, any closing comments? Sure. I just want to encourage uh, people to visit our blog at labviewjournal.com. I also want to encourage people to go to NI Week 2013, and we have several different sessions that uh, the field architects are involved with. Um, Nancy has uh, a couple of sessions on designing a framework in LabVIEW, uh, another one about everything you wanted to know about functional global variables, and then Nancy and I both are sharing these hands-on on object-oriented design as well as code review best practices. So we're looking forward to seeing people there. And of course, I'll give a plug to your NI Week 2013 podcast. So if you're thinking about NI Week, be sure and listen to those podcasts. Well, thanks again, Brian. You bet. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast. Well, thank you as well for listening to this podcast episode. Make sure to visit our website, uh, vishots.com, and go to the episode number 24 and leave a comment there if you have any questions or you want to continue the discussion. Also, send us an email to feedback at vishots.com. Thanks again for listening and bye for now.